same with I think this is all stupid and I'm a little fired up, but we'll get into the nuance. I don't think this is as bad as it could have made it. Major markets is where they're pushing them out of so to buy secondary and, and properties. Is a major market? You know, honestly. That's a big concern. Well, yes, because listen. We're setting rules across the country because of Vancouver. We all know these things are more politically motivated than anything else. Local Canadians will pipe up and say that they think that the foreign people are what's causing uh, the. Kind of sounds like what the government's saying, isn't you're it? You're saying you're not allowed. You're allowed to come here. You're allowed to work the jobs we don't want to work. You're allowed to pay taxes, but we're also going to gouge you on rental income because we're going to prevent you from buying a house. But I think a lot of people that come here on a temporary work permit are going to be able to when, buy a when, house. When I was broke, I had rich habits. Uh. When I was broke, I had rich habits. Uh. All right, we are back. Welcome to Masterpiece Podcast. Yeah, episode two of this great new year, 2023. We see you. We hope you're crushing it already. We hope you took some great things for the last episode. As always, if you find something of value here, please let us know. Like, follow, subscribe, comment. Thanks to all the new people here as well, right? Yeah, to that point, we're going to start shouting out five new people every episode. And so today, I'm going to read them. The... We love you. Yeah, we do. Number one, thank you, Aaron Hebb, David Drizal, mm-hmm. Olga Lenta, yeah. David Hubert, and Georgie Georgieve. Georgie Georgieve. Or Georgie Georgie. We appreciate you all. Thanks. Um, thanks for subscribing, guys. This is a community. We see you. We love you. We got lots of cool stuff to talk about today. We're going to premiere a couple new segments that we're excited about. Uh, the key player of the week, uh, Q&A section, all of this stuff that we're going to talk about. Um, but we're going to begin first with with some important news, or you want to highlight something about those more? And well, yeah, then the topic. So our topic for today is yes. how yeah. to get your exit. We've been talking oh, yeah. about how it's a lot more difficult right now, obviously with rates being up. Uh, prices aren't super, aren't growing at an extremely fast pace. Uh, so we just talk about a couple options to get your money out and basically weather the storm for the next couple of years so you can be ready to... Uh yeah, and, and generally speaking, just anyone who might also coincidentally have a refinance coming up here, some things yeah. you might want to consider because the refinance uh, is is a necessity of life, and sometimes you do it of your own accord trying to exit, and we're going to talk a lot about that and what options are, and sometimes you just happen to be coming up for a refinance, and obviously in this current rate market, that's not super fun to know. But probably the biggest news uh, here in Canada from a real estate perspective of late, has been this foreign buyer ban. So let's yep. start with that. A few of you have asked us about that. It's something I've been super angry about um, to anyone who would listen to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you're going to get it. You're yeah. going to hear it. I'll, I'll, I'll dive right into it. So everyone's probably heard about it, but there's a foreign buyer ban that went in place January 1st of 2023. Uh, it's in place for two full years. Uh, and basically, as a whole, the idea is to reduce people that don't live in Canada from buying property and making it more difficult for Canadians to get into a home. Um, the average price last year peaked at $815,000. And there's pricey. A, it is very pricey. And there is um, a strong belief, I'll say, that the foreign buyers are attributing to this or contributing to it at least. Um, so to break it down, what the rules are, number one, it's all residential properties inside of a metropolitan area. Hmm. They're yep. unable to buy. Uh, that includes residential land. Now, that's basically what it is as a whole. The asterisks are metropolitan area. So that means a city has to be a minimum of 100,000 people. And to be clear, they do this based on census areas. So our yes. census area here of Halifax like a no-brainer. But there are some places around the periphery there that are not... The, the metropolitan where I live. I mean, Neil maybe doesn't apply for it, but even around like Truro, technically because of its regional size, met these criteria. So too did, for example, the Sydney area of Cape Breton. They're calling these because of their their census borders metropolitan areas that now uh, foreign buyers cannot purchase in. I live literally on the border, 
on the outside of it. So there's an opportunity there for people to continue to buy, and I would say in a heavily trafficked area, yeah, uh, and, and be but technically outside of this. Um, well, that's the, the other, first thing to consider. That's the first thing to consider. The other item is it does not apply to recreational properties, so cottage properties, um, as well as they say large buildings and multi-units. Yeah. Now, it doesn't specify if that includes a duplex, because that is multiple units. Right. Um, and I suspect that that'll become kind of a gray area issue, uh, that people will be buying duplexes, triplexes, and four units. And realistically, duplexes is a great way for a lot of young buyers to get their first home. Yeah. But that's and one And the item. key takeaway there is, like, you're talking about people who are actually buying the homes. Yep. You know, the my issue with this whole thing, and we're going to get into this in a second, is that they're effectively using these heavy-handed tactics to quell an issue that, frankly, is barely an issue to begin with, and it's certainly not an issue here. Like, it is a infinitesimally small number of, of properties being purchased by foreign investors who are truly just doing speculative uh, purchasing, like the vacant condos you hear about, the pre-construction, et cetera, et cetera. So, to begin well, with, I think this is all stupid, but we'll get into the nuance. Yeah, and I mean, while we're on that little side note, we've talked about it on here before, but... In BC, which is the highest rate, it was 4% of purchases were foreign buyers. Ontario yeah. was second at below 2%, if I remember correctly. I think it was 1.9%. And I believe Nova Scotia was 0.7%. Um, so Atlantic Canadian provinces are sub 1%. Those Ontario are is sub 2%. Yeah. And then BC is around 4% of, of all of the, the transactions taking place. So, And you may see some numbers that are higher than that, but it's the difference between those were the numbers for ones that were actually being knowingly purchased as investments. Uh, obviously, the number of properties being purchased by you know non-residents and, and foreign buyers are, are higher than that, but the higher differential is the people that are actually buying them for themselves. Yeah, truly. Exactly. So they're not the issue. When you think of the actual issue, as Neil uh, mentioned there with those numbers, it's incredibly, incredibly small and hyper-focused on a couple areas. So the other items to consider with this are exemptions. There are exemptions for temporary work permits, which again, to be honest with you, we'll go into that, but I think that's going to be a loophole. Uh, refugees, and then also students. Within the students category, there's a few more little asterisks depending on what the student is doing. Uh, they have to be enrolled for a certain amount of time. They have to be spending a certain amount of the year. You have to be in, in the country for, I believe, 244 days of yeah, the year, which students days. wouldn't be. Um, there's a couple other things that they threw in last minute that on paper sounded like tightening of the loopholes. And then in actual reality, for people trying to do this genuinely, it's just landmines that they're being thrown. Yeah. It's... Um, so that that's kind of, again, as a whole, that's what it looks like. As a penalty for it, they have a fine up to $10,000, which at first I was like... Just do it anyway. Yeah, I'll just do it anyways and pay the extra... When I buy a house, I'll be like, it's an extra ten grand. Um, but there's also in there, it says, you may have to sell the property. So they could force you to pay the $10,000 plus forfeit the property. Um, additionally, they said those who are found to be a part of this knowingly or assisted somebody in right. accomplishing this can also be fined, which I feel like there will be some realtors that are going to get hit with a fine. Um, oh, you think? Yeah, there's going to yeah. be some realtors that get hit with a fine. But again, that that's... It would also uh, probably limit, like, if you were trying to establish your PR or citizenship, having this blemish on your record would be something you'd be very fearful of. Yes, right? well, so, that's true. That's also yeah. would be a very difficult thing uh, to get by. So I have to say, I'm going to say it, that I don't think this is as bad as it could have made it. Like, I feel like 
they've done bands like this before. Provinces individually have done bands like this before. And I feel like they did learn from it by adding in the idea that like major markets is where they're pushing them out of. Um, they're so allowed Truro to buy secondary and, and properties. a major market? That we need to worry about speculative buying uh, from absentee people hope, having empty condos in Truro? You know, honestly... That's a big concern. Well, yes, because, listen, people in those areas still can't get a home. Like, I know, like, not necessarily a home, well, I guess maybe but not a home living, but there's usually homes available to buy, um, but they also can't find a place to live. I, I know in those neighborhoods, in those Ooh, in those communities, now, in those buddy. towns, the people are, are struggling to find a place to live. If they get a job so, in Kenfield, so they can't find a place to live. They can't find a place to live, so now all of the... Um, you know, new to country residents who would buy a home and live in it instead are going to compete with them for rentals. So that's going to make it harder or easier for those people to find rental apartments. I totally agree. I understand on that aspect, but I do, I do think that as a whole, like the people that they're stopping from buying this are not ones that are coming here for the most part. This, this is designed, like if you're coming here with a temporary work permit, which a lot of people end up coming over with, or you have your PR, which you can do a PR, I believe it's under a year in, in Nova Scotia. Um, Ooh, I don't think you can get a PR anymore in under a year at all. Say sub two years then, because Atlantic Canada had an expedited program. The, the idea is to get people that are actually coming here to stay. Um, I feel like they've done a better job. I'm not saying it's perfect. I agree with you. I don't. I don't love these 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 uh, these bands in general. Any band, I find they're too they're too much of a blanket. But the all the little points that they've put into there to try and reduce that that impact that it has on people that don't but shouldn't be impacted. I think right? we've already been agreeing that you that's you implying that you believe this is an impact in our area. You believe these foreign investors are legitimately driving prices up in our area. To to a st- statistically significant point, I don't necessarily know that's significant. That that I don't necessarily. But I, I can tell think, you, I do think at four percent that that's significant. You that's one in twenty five, like that. That's enough that everyone knows someone that's that's yeah, lost a deal. The to problem that is like we're setting rules across the country because of Vancouver and Toronto. Why does how does that make sense? Because I'm going to tell you something that, like, like I, I'm very sensitive to this right now, and I'm a little fired up. Like a and the reason being is, as coincidence would have it, I'm turning over a lot of units right now. Mm-hmm. A large number are these um, furnished rentals, which is something I've never really done before. Yep. And I mean, they're not short-term vacation tourist rentals. These are kind of transitionary, or historically they've been more geared, and this is my idea, towards tradespeople that would be here on a contract and they spend a short time in this furnished unit yeah, as an affordable alternative months. to a hotel. Yep. I'm now turning those units over and I'm inundated with individuals who are new to the country and I mean sometimes new within the last 24 hours um, or more often it's you know they are three weeks here and now they're in a world of, of, of trouble because they have been recruited here under the guise of you know we got great jobs for you yep. and we, we need your labor and there's so much opportunity here and there's a, an element of truth in that because we do need like there's there's a lot of jobs available. Mm-hmm. However, what they're not told is, by the way, there's nowhere for you to live, at all. Uh, and so I'm getting applications for 200 square foot bachelor units uh, for like families of four. Yeah. Uh, with solid jobs. Yeah. Um, and I can't squeeze them in a 200 square foot bachelor unit, and you know they have to go out there and compete in a really difficult rental market, and 
Some of them are here for really great jobs. So look at all of the health professionals that we're trying to bring to Nova Scotia. Imagine a scenario where we bring a doctor here and uh, maybe they move to Toronto. Then he's on a work permit. I think you still, with the work permit, have to be here for a certain period of time to then get your PR. It says you're exempt if you have a temporary work permit. So as long as you can get a temporary work permit, you can buy a house. Okay. That's my thing. That's, my saying. That's what I'm saying. They, it's, I feel like the older older ones, the older bands that have gone in place, they would just be like, boom, foreign buyers can't buy them, uh, can't buy homes. Now they've actually put some exemptions in that kind of make sense, and they've tried to really reduce the impact on the people that genuinely are moving here with the promise of a job, and they're going to stay in Canada, but they're unable to now buy. Like those are the, That's a small percentage, I think, of the people that are moving here potentially, but I could be wrong. But, yeah. and, and, and again, I, as a whole, I don't think they should be in place. I really don't. Well, I just but, understand. But you I tell do think that they've done a better here. job than they have in the past. Like you tell people to come over here. They make this huge risk in their life. They move their entire family over here. They're already given the bait and switch of like, it's not all it's cracked up to be. The job is here, but you're not going to have anywhere to live. And if you have the means, and because you have this great, great job to go and buy a house, we're now going to throw all these obstacles at you that make you so you cannot buy this house, which in fact actually makes the rental market harder, not easier. So this is, again, the all these rules are set by people who, at the end of the day, don't actually have a fundamental, you know, close arm's length perspective of what's going on in the market and what the real challenges are. It's... You know, there's nowhere for these people to live, and it is going to come to a real tipping point um, because they're going to stop coming, and rightfully so. Uh, or they're this, going this to just ban be... is not going to reduce the amount of inventory, though. How do you mean? Sorry. So you're saying that this ban is going to stop people from moving here, but the, the inventory is the issue that we don't have enough inventory. Yeah. And I don't think this is negatively impacting the amount of multi units that are going to be built. No, I don't disagree with that. I I think you're. Uh, effectively scapegoating and marginalizing um, people who aren't from here. And that's a dangerous uh, avenue to go down. That they can't afford to buy a house? No, you're saying you're not allowed. You're allowed to come here. You're allowed to work the jobs we don't want to work. You're allowed to pay taxes. But we're also going to gouge you on rental income because we're going to prevent you from buying a house. Like but if that you're is here tr- working and going through the process, like again, you're coming on a work permit more likely than not. Yeah, I mean, and you create, I don't know. Like I don't they're, know what, they're in a refugee I don't know status. what the cr- credentials are um, of of the ones that are on a work permit, but I think that's not quite as much of a slam dunk as you think it is. Because I, I don't hearing, think I don't think it's a huge slam dunk, but I think it reduces it. Like I said, as a whole, the other thing is we all know these things are more politically motivated than anything else because a lot of local Canadians will pipe up and say that they think that the foreign people are what's causing. Uh, the the foreign migrants are what's causing the issue that we face. Kind of sounds like what the government's saying, isn't it? Well, then they're agreeing with it because, again, there's a, there's a large populace that agrees with that. There's a, I think there's a large populace that silently agrees with that as well, and that's where they gain the votes. And everybody oh knows God. someone that, that has a local kid that cannot afford to buy a home, and it's easy to push that problem on somebody that's not from here. Um, but yeah. I do think, again, uh. that if they're going to put something like this in, what I'm getting at is I don't, th- I don't agree with this, but if they're going to put something in, they've done a better job of doing it. Um, the one thing that I see, my, my concern with this it's it's in so it's in place now. But my concern that I see with it is the temporary work permits. That's going to become the loophole. There's going to be so many shell like companies. Effectively, it'll be like a small restaurant or a, a nail salon or a grocer or a gas station that has a payroll of forty people. Yeah, yeah. Right, and they're all going to be temporary workers, uh, and that's how they're going to get around it if it really becomes something that people want to. But like, don't do. we don't we want these people to stay here? 
We do, yeah. Aren't they more likely to stay here if they can buy a house? Yes, but I think a lot of people that come here on a temporary work permit are going to be able to buy a house. Anyway, well, this high level, it's... We have this problem I, I right now. I agree that like, it sucks, yeah. but I'm just saying they've done a better job than they have in the past. Okay. But as a whole, I do agree that it, there's no point in doing this. Or they need to do it literally to a city basis where... But like, it doesn't make sense anymore because even if you go into Vancouver and Toronto and slap this in, the average person can't buy a $2.5 million house. Yeah. So yeah. like, what are you, what are you stopping then? Uh, 100%. We're digressing way too far into this, and I think there's probably some people out there that aren't interested in it. And Sorry if you had to just listen to that. But I think it is relevant, I think, also when you consider our city just grew by 20,000 people over the 12 months between July 2021 and July 2022. You see that this city is growing, and these are going to continue to be issues and conversations we need to have, yep. and it's cross-country as well. Um, the More locally. More locally, or just kind of like changing gears... Uh, a little bit because it kind of relates to housing supply. Um, a few of you have asked about um, the short-term rental latest rules in Halifax and the province at large. Yep. I did a video that is on the Master Keys Instagram. If you want to check it out, um, maybe we'll add it as a short as well on YouTube, outlining kind of what the, the province did. So I'm going to high-level it for you guys here. Essentially, the province is going to um, create and require that by April of this year, all short-term rentals be registered in a database with the province. The first thing you're going to say is, no, I don't feel like doing it. So what they're going to do then is they're going to cross-reference and somehow they're going to approach these short-term rentals sites like Verbo, Airbnb, and if they see properties listed in Nova Scotia, they're going to check if that property is on their database or not. And if they are not, they you know will be taken off that site. Um, now you may think, well, I have a rental property. I'm still going to continue to do it. How are they actually going to enforce it? And what problems could this bring to my doorstep? <laughs> um, the I other going to register. You ain't catching me. Yeah, actually. Now that I said it on here, I have. This to is funny. We were at a social event, and I was talking about these rules, and Neil literally went like this. <laughs> I wish so. If, if you guys are, are listening to this, this is worth tuning in for. <laughs> Neil goes, not going to register. And then he did this thing like this. <laughs> like this weird shimmy shake. He said, not going to register. And he shimmy shake. Um, so <laughs> if we, if we talk about consequences, if, um, if the government, if the provincial government then has this list of, okay, here are all of the short-term registered uh, properties um, then they can supply that to the municipality. And it's really easy for the municipality to go, wait a second, that's not allowed there. Because a short-term rental has historically been deemed a commercial use. And if you're doing it in a residential area, that violates our municipal planning, our zoning, all that stuff. And you could be subject to fines or just having your place shut down. So again, it's provincial registry enforced by cross-referencing against the websites and then distributed at a municipal level to crack down on non-conformers, even if they are registered. So if you Please. register your unit and you know think, well, I'm, I'm okay, I registered it, well, it may not be allowed in that area. Exactly. It's going to become non-conformers, and even ones that do conform, they're going to hit you with taxes. So oh, yeah. It's, it's like, it, okay. It, well, it's yeah, going to be a mixture yeah. of taxes. Like There's going to be making sure that you're going to get audited for income taxes based on the business. Which you should have been paying anyway. But. Which you've been paying anyways. Uh, additionally, yeah, you might be in a property conforming tax. area. Exactly. And it's a commercial property that allows for short-term rentals. But you may have property tax obligations now for utilizing that property commercially. And if any of you guys have commercial property, you will know that commercial property tax is probably 
4x. Ooh, it's three to four x. Depending where you are, it can be three yeah. to four x what it is residentially. Um, and so that can really add up when you're like, oh, my property taxes went from six thousand to twenty four thousand uh, dollars. Then you're like, oh, maybe this doesn't make so much sense to do short term rentals anymore. Yeah. Um, as a whole, how do you feel about this? Um, well, I was already I exiting the short term rental game. I'll say. Yeah, I, 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 I've i struggled with short-term rentals myself. I think government regulations are flying against it. In our last episode, when we were talking about what is going to be hot and what is not going to be hot, I said that I don't think short-term rentals are going to be hot moving forward. Um, but just to take it a, a step closer, you realize, you know, based on that scenario I just outlined, that the real jurisdiction, the real enforcement, the real monitoring is going to come at the municipal level. So now all the municipalities around the province are going to have to revisit their own zoning bylaws because there's some municipalities that say, wait, wait, we want these short-term rentals. So they are going to do things that um, allow for short-term rentals in their area. So I think there could be some municipalities that lean into this. And as an investor, you're going to really want to keep tabs on that. Um, What they're doing in Halifax is... They're going to allow, in the residentially zoned areas, they will let you have a short-term rental if it is in your primary residence. Uh, So if you live there, basically, you can have a short-term rental within your primary residence. They, at this point, have decided they're not going to be allowed in backyard suites. Uh, Then, of course, if you're in a commercial district you will be allowed to have these short-term rentals. Not backyard suites one was weird to me. It was weird to me also. Perfect. It, you'd think it made a lot of sense, but the whole reason they passed this unilateral you can have a backyard suite is because they wanted invisible density of long-term housing stock. So I think that might be modified, because I agree with you. But I'd um, rather have a random person I've never met in my life, and I'll probably never see, in the unit that's detached from I my know, home. I know, but it's not about you. It's okay. about... Right. Well, yeah, I mean, it's my house. Oh, you know, 100%. I know, I know, I know, I know, um, like that, I just run a long breezeway to attach it and be like, oh, it's all one dwelling, <laughs> but this is the... the. So... Um, there's estimated to be around a thousand short-term rentals in the Halifax municipality. So here's a little quiz for Neil. Mm. A little Neil quiz. All right, mess me up. What area of Halifax has the most short-term rentals? Mm, thinking North End Halifax. Close. That's number two, and number one is the South End. I, 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 the reason you because you asked, I thought it, I was like it's got to be South End, but I'm like yeah, no, you, you ever thought it, bud? Um, so there's about 400, just over 400. South uh, End's in the close South to downtown, End. by the way. Yeah, and it's also close to the universities, the hospitals. There's a uh, a lot of there's a number if of apartment buildings Halifax, there. Yeah, it's a good End. location. Yeah. Uh, the North End has about 250, just under, mm-hmm. um, and the Eastern Shore was actually third uh, with just over 200. That would be no a more way. of a you know, oh. retreat, Lawrencetown, kind of... Realistically, because the South Shore isn't part of HRM. Correct. Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, so we're talking about addressing effectively a 1,000 units, um, which you could argue is a drop in the proverbial bucket when it comes to this housing shortage. Um, so my thoughts, you asked me, you know, what are my thoughts on this in general? I It always pains me to see something that predominantly was helping young people Yep. and was predominantly help them, helping them um, grow net worth through real estate, yep. I hate seeing that taken away. Because on the one hand, we're saying it is so difficult for young people to get into home ownership, to frankly get into savings and growing their net worth. And here's a tool that because of their ingenuity and their hustle, they have been able to do that other generations didn't. And now we are taking it away from them 
and I understand that uh, it's the housing uh, shortage. That's the reasoning behind it. But this, again, is a drop in the bucket. And I think that probably the big hoteliers and, and all of that, I think there's maybe some other people behind the scenes doing this. Maybe it's even just municipalities and governments wanting more tax dollars for this stuff. But it pains me to see this tool that young people were using to get a foothold in the market being taken away. And I don't know why we continue to try to cut people off at the knees when they're trying to make their way financially. Okay. Yeah, and I, I agree completely. The two things I'm going to add in there is um, I feel like for a place like Halifax, Atlantic Canada, it's a big tourism-based city. Um, and so I think it'll negatively impact that because I already see whenever we have an event, we don't have yeah. very many hotels and they're full. Like and they're upwards of like 800 for like the nice, nicest hotel in town per night. Yeah. You know, you might get a modest hotel for like 300 if it's actually in the core actually downtown during the summertime Could you get a hotel for 300 a night no nah, I, I don't think, think so, so anymore like yeah, during the summertime it was 350 to stay in bears lake which is about 15 Ooh. minutes out of downtown um when our city's only 25 minutes wide that's out there um the other thing for like i guess for consideration is i think when they put this in on top of the idea that like people don't want airbnbs in their neighborhoods um people don't like it's, it's getting in the way of rentals it's also i think the idea is that it's going to make houses more affordable because people were affording homes or just buying them for the purpose of turning them into Airbnbs, right, right. Which, the investment push, component. which push the yeah. prices up. Um, but I don't, I think the problems surpass that. And realistically, like we, like you just said, it's actually going to force young people out of the house because the only way they could potentially afford to get into a home is through utilizing Airbnb or Verbo or whatever their short-term rental option was. And the homes are going to stay expensive because at the end of the day, we still have way more people than we do homes and we're not building at a pace that we need to be. And so that's still going to outpace it. It's not, it's going to just keep the idea that it's going to be more, still more difficult for a young person to attain than an, uh, an older person who already has the equity or already has the money or the generational wealth that's at their disposal. We have so many people that are in the, that already have their homes paid off that already have the wealth that they can deal with the inventory. And this is not going to help bring the host prices down, in my opinion. I honestly, yeah. I don't think so. I'm going to give you a, a couple other little things to think of as a breakdown. So there's a 1,000 units, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're saying they will still allow the ones that are in someone's primary residence, which yep. maybe is, I don't know, 250 of those? Yeah, probably. Maybe. So So now there's 750 potential units. Yep. One thing that people don't really like to talk about is that a lot of these Airbnb units aren't quite legal. And the way yeah. they... You know, get around it is ah, it's Airbnb. It's short term. It's not enforced. Of that seven hundred and fifty, how many do you think are actually legal Airbnbs? I'd say half. More huh? than that, I'd say okay. more than that. I'd say so, four fifty. So let's say there's still now there's four hundred and fifty legal ones. You know, legal units right. that that could be yep. approved as as a rental unit. Yeah. Um, and then some of them are ones that people only put up when they're maybe traveling. Or maybe, you know, they work half the time here. They work half the time. Like, like yep. we're saying, hey, we like this idea of remote working. The way people do that is by effectively cohabitating their own space. Yep. Um, so how many of those are going to be situations where someone owns a condo or owns a house that they rent out for maybe certain periods of time? They will not be able to necessarily rent that to a full year-round tenant. Yep. And maybe that only drops off another... 50, right? So now you're down to 400 units. And I'm going to give you another scenario of how many people will ultimately decide that given this situation, like I liked the flexibility and control of having a short-term tenant there. For example, at my cottage. Yep. Right? 
Um, but I want to use my cottage. Yep. And I don't like the idea of renting it out to someone else full time. So I'm just going to say, you know what? It was a nice run while I had it. Yep. And now I can't do short-term rentals. I'm just not going to do it at all. And maybe that's a tiny amount. Maybe that's only another 50. So now we're down to maybe, best case scenario, this whole thing, if they really crack down on it and, and shutter all of the 1,000. That's assuming... You know, none of the 1,000 register. um, registers, yep. right? Everyone decides to just convert over. You might be talking 350 units. Mm-hmm. So will that 350 units actually move the needle in terms of affordability? We all know that it won't. And then the problem is these That's are nice units. Well, they're nice units, typically. People yeah, have them staged up. They have them looking good. And in some t- cases, they're going to be furnished. The rents are going to be very expensive for these. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not like all of a sudden, like, great, those 350 Airbnbs that were converted now to apartments are going to go for 900 bucks. Like, no, that's not the case. Yeah. So yeah. I think, again, it is. Grand. And you know what's wild about this? This is the part that just blows my mind. They've been studying this and analyzing this since I think it was April 2020. So well, think of how much tax grand. dollars and how much capital like personal capital individual work and hearings and meetings and all of the stuff that has gone into potentially mm-hmm. freeing up 350 full market rent apartments best case scenario i don't know why the focus isn't on building there it is why don't All we just focus the- on building a ton of units and then everyone can have everything? We're coming up on the three-year anniversary of this investigation at the Halifax level. How much money has been spent to investigate what could amount to 350 units? Yeah. Couldn't that money have just built a couple apartment buildings to provide actual, real, affordable housing? Case in point. End of rant. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this point. Please don't forget to like, follow, subscribe, and all that. In the second half of this episode, we got some really cool content. We're going to introduce a new segment. It's called the Key Player of the Week. So we're excited about that. We're also going to go into our main topic, which is all your different refinance options. Everyone right now is really nervous about refinancing because of the current rate market. But whether or not you're trying to get out of a deal that's a bad situation or get more money to do your next deal, or even if you just have a simple, straightforward refinance coming, we're going to walk you through through all of your options from very complicated and aggressive to just simple, protective, smart financing. We also have another new segment, which is the Q&A. Someone had a question for Neil, so we're going to unpack that. Thanks so much for listening. We appreciate you. Um, what else you got We got a us? couple <laughs> quick little news things, uh, and these are a bit more North American broad. Um, U.S. inflation was announced down to 6.5%. Um, and their inflation indicator, their primary inflation indicator, equivalent of our CPI, basically, um, has declined now for six months in a row. Nice. And we have to remember, at its peak, it was up over 9%. Yeah. So U.S. inflation being down to 6%, predominantly because of, you know, declining gas prices, but still, it all counts. It's down to 6.5%. That, in turn, is going to likely uh, impact what the Fed does, which, in turn, has heavy influence on what the Bank of Canada does. I'm not saying rates are going down. I'm just saying we've rolled over. Inflation is headed downward. Hopefully that trickles uh, across the border to fixed. us up here. It's all fixed. Inflation's over. Now, is it going to uh, just keep going down? Well, six months in a row is also the, the key yeah. indicator there, right? Um, the other thing I want to talk about is this trend um, or, or this this term. I've, I've heard it 
on and off for a little while. Uh, Bigger Pockets had a cool story about it. Again, very U.S. centric, but I can tell you just anecdotally what we're experiencing: this seller strike scenario. Uh, and I was talking to We've someone about, about this, this before, have we not? We've talked about all kinds of worker strikes in this, but the seller strike is essentially the seller saying, "Well, then I'm just not going to sell my home." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah right, yeah, like, and there's yeah. this standoff right now. Like, buyers are like, "Give me your home." No, nah, no, nah, give it to me cheaper. <laughs> and sellers are just going, no, nah, I'm good. I don't have to. I'm also signed so, in at 1.4%. So. You know, inventory is so, so, so low. And what is the catalyst? What is the impetus? What is the reasoning for a seller to sell? Um, a lot of them are gonna, just going to say, I'm just going to take the luxurious position I'm in, which is I've got equity in my property. Um, I have a nice property. I don't need to sell. Likely and a they're low rate. Just likely a low rate. And they're just not going to sell. And mm. we are already seeing that here. Um, you know, inventory is so low here locally. It's so low across the country. And so people are calling this this little seller strike. You know, the sellers had all the leverage. Then for a while, the buyers have felt like, no, no, it's our turn to have some leverage here. And the sellers are basically saying, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, that doesn't. I'm not surprised at all that... Uh we kind of talked about that, how a lot of people who own their homes have a ton of equity. Uh, if they did buy in the last two years, they probably have a really good rate. Yeah. Um, and so they don't feel the need to sell. There are going to be some people that do have to sell and they're moving those properties. But I don't think it's as large of a percentage as the average person. And they'll do okay because. Assuming, or how if, much we're assuming. Yeah. If only people who really need to sell list their homes, that won't be that many people. Right. And, need and, and that, you know, will will kind of drive the price up. Um, imagine someone, this is the other thing, people are like, oh yeah, but wait till their, wait till their uh, rate renews. Wait till the rate renews. Like, well, then you're implying, you're, you're mainly talking about people who bought in 2018. Yeah. So what kind of equity position might that person have if they bought in 2018? Yeah. Yeah, they're enough. probably up conservatively 35%. Yeah. I don't know that they're necessarily sweating. And we're going to talk about some really cool refinance things uh, in the second half as our main topic. Um, and you can see how someone who may even be facing a higher rate is still going to have tons of options to cool. stay in that home if they want. Yeah. The, when you have a low rate like that, you pay down so much equity, and then you can just re-amortize the entire mortgage again. Yeah. So, anyway, there's yeah. a ton of options. So we're going to talk about that as our main topic. Yeah. How to get how to get your exit. Um, so this is a new segment we're going to add in today. Yeah. yeah. Uh, really excited about this segment. Yeah. It's going to be called the key player. And so every week we're going to introduce a key player that we are following or have seen or has been submitted to us about someone who's just killing it, whether it be in the investment game, or real estate. Could be uh, you. It could be you. Maybe you're um, the key player out there. Let us know. What do you got going on? Anything. If you have a business that's doing really well. Uh, let us know. We're super excited to start uh, talking with people that, that we're looking up to or are doing something amazing. Uh, so this week, we're actually going to preview who we have on next week as our guest. Yeah. And he's a local guy. Uh, I've been buddies with him for a lot of years. I met him through the car community and some and some friends, mutual friends. Uh, yeah. His name is Cyrus Abibi. He's with Premier Mortgage. A.K.A. Cy Guy. Cy Guy. Um, he's 28 years old, and he has been the number one individual in Nova Scotia for volume for 2020, 2021, and 2022. He's an absolute beast. Yeah, he's uh, a mortgage broker. He's a with, mortgage uh, broker. With Premier. 
Yes, right and here he is in done, Halifax. He's done roughly $300 million uh, in volume since he started. Um, and he also got, last year, number nine for small markets across Canada. So he is a very impressive human. I don't even think he has an assistant yet. He does everything for your deal. He's all over it. So we're going to have him on uh, next week to talk about kind of how he grew his business as well as what he can do for his clients and help them get in and out of their properties or help them get into their next property. But uh, yeah, I think what's he are, driving? Yeah, so and uh, like I said, I, I met him through the car community, and so he has a couple different vehicles. But the most notable would be his Corvette Z06, which I think I want to say is tipping on a thousand uh, crank horsepower. He'll correct me when I say this, but it's an absolute beast, and he destroys me vroom, on the vroom. road. Um, what's that? It goes vroom vroom. That's it, all. I know it goes vroom vroom. It's one of the loudest cars I've ever heard, and it will blow out your eardrums. But uh, maybe we'll get him to uh, to preview it on here. Do a little burnout for the pod. Yeah. So Cyrus Habibi is our key player of the week yeah so again this is going to be a segment we're going to do every week we're going to highlight someone either locally either someone nationally or just a cool company even that we see doing something awesome in the space yeah Um, so if you know of anyone who could be a good key player of the week hit us up let us know we'd love we'd love to talk about them so now we're gonna get into our topic yeah we've talked about it a bit but again it's how to get your exit the market has slowed we all know that it's predominantly due to interest rates. Um, and some of you might be already in a project and you're hearing the rumors that, hey, maybe I'm not going to get the full 75 or 80% on the refinance when I go to get out of this thing. Or even if I do, how am I going to service the debt? Um, and so we've got a couple options that we're looking at doing because we're also mid midstream in a bunch of projects. Yep. And so we're having to utilize these tactics to get out and some of the other tactics that we've heard or techniques we've heard on the street that uh, fellow investors are using to kind of kind of get their money back and keep the keep the ball rolling because on the flip side we still believe there will be opportunities uh, that are going to arise and we're saying yes there's a seller strike that's again more on the residential side of properties on the multi-unit investment side there's still going to be more opportunities because there are people who are going to have renewals or there are people who are fed up with the business with all the new rules that went in place so again it's being prepared to capitalize on those opportunities yeah so so let's just um talk first really basically what a refinance is. So everyone understands when they buy a home, they have to finance that home or that investment property to make the purchase. That is an agreement with a bank to lend you the vast majority of the money required to buy the property. And you have a term for that loan. Yep. So the most common term and, and for simplicity is five years, right? Often mm-hmm. that's there's good rate incentives if you lock in for five years. That says that I am going to borrow this money from this lender um, for five years, and at the end of the five years, uh, I will owe them that money back, okay? And then I replace that either with a new loan from them or perhaps a loan from someone else, or I could sell the property and pay them out. But there's essentially a fixed time um, that I have that loan agreement with that lender. And if you're on a fixed rate, Oh, lucky you. If you're on a fixed rate, um, you you <laughs> will pay that same rate through the whole period. And why that's relevant is at different times, you may want to break that financing agreement and start a new one or add new funds to it. Now, when you're doing a BRRRR project or a, um, an investment project where you're getting a lift, you may look for a refinance just 12 or 18 months 
after you've purchased the initial property. Yep. So you'll look at the pros and cons when you're doing your initial financing of, you know, do I want just a two-year product knowing that I'm going to refinance two years from now? Or, you know, am I locking in for five years, but then I want to get my money out after two? If I break the whole thing, there's penalties. So how do I get the extra money? There's a lot of intricacies to it. So what we're going to talk about um, is that process, which is called the refinance. Yeah. You're at the end of your first term or you want to terminate Second your... Second last R. Yeah, you want to add uh, extra or, money or get money out of the property before your term is up. That is what we're referring to by refinance. Yeah. Or and again, when your exit could also be a sale. Yeah. But yeah, so again, did, now Chandler's explained it. That's what the refinance is. Um, a lot of you guys, a lot of you would know that. And in this case, again, you've gone to get your refinance. Fortunately, you may be able to, if it's a smaller property, utilize your personal income to offset uh, the lack of rental income to cover the new mortgage payment. Mm -hmm. And so you might still be able to get your 80% or 75% uh, out of the property. But we're seeing it a bunch now where even with a fully stabilized building, everything's great, rents are at market rents, you may only get 75%. And that's, sorry, 65%. Uh, and that's because with cap rates on most renovated product is around five and a half to six percent, but your rate, especially on the commercial side, will likely be seven percent. Mm -hmm. So right off the hop, you know you're not going to be able to debt service uh, at the rate that you need to get the full equity takeout. Um, it, you raise an interesting point here. There are scenarios where someone is say did their initial mortgage at seventy five percent loan to value, mm -hmm. and maybe they don't change anything with the building. And they get all excited because they're like, but the building's gone up in value. Yep. I should be able to go back and get more of that money. Which you could at one point. Which, which you could at one point. But the bank's going to say, actually, because the rates have gone up so much, um, we can't give you any more money. We'll effectively we keep your loan the same. In some cases, they might say, we need you to put money in yeah. even to do this deal for you. So to this renew. is the real challenge you sometimes have with a refinance. This is when you come up for one organically, like your five years are up and you need to do something. Um, you may find yourself in a, in a difficult uh, predicament if you haven't been able to get market rents. 100%. So the first technique that I've seen that I like, um, and I think it's more prevalent in bigger marketplaces um, like Ontario and BC, is the idea that you take a private loan because they will look more at the loan to value but they'll also allow you to do interest-only payments. Yeah. And so there are private lenders out there that'll do around 8 9%, potentially lower depending on the size of the deal. And so when you can consider that I can go to a regular bank and borrow the money at around 7%, and I have to do interest, principal and interest. plus principal, yeah. so my payment might be 5000 bucks a month, why not go to a bank and borrow the money at 8%? So, yes, it's a percentage point higher. That's a pretty low private rate, though. Say, well, say 9%. We'll say 899. Ooh, that's a good private rate. But right. outside, outside of Atlantic Canada is very expensive. They're going to yeah. be between the 10 to 13% range. Yeah. Um, but a lot of bigger markets, honestly, are cheaper. But even True. if we say 9%, yep. uh, 9% in one of those markets, you're now only paying interest. Mm -hmm. And so your payment will actually drop by probably 30%. 35%. Like, it'll be a large, large drop. Uh, we should have done some numbers here. And uh, maybe I'll do that when you're chatting. But that can allow you to service it. And so you can go to the private and say, hey, look, can I get this product for 18 months, 24 months? 
and this way I can your rent will service that debt. You can float the property. You might not get this big cash takeout right away, but you'll be able to at least keep the property and allow it to get to a point where then, okay, rates have now gone back down. I can look at getting a refi, and at that point in time, you'll take a cash out. So again, it, it seems uh, contrary, but I'll actually shout out Ben Mala. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you listen to Ben Mala or have watched some of his content at least once before, and he's a bit of a goofball, but he always talks about he only buys, pretty much only, but he predominantly buys on interest-only loans, uh, and that's how he measures everything. He goes, look, this place is a million bucks. I'm going to take an interest-only loan at 85%, so i gotta, I got to pay this payment, and the rent is more than this, so I, this is the cash-on-cash cash return that I'm making, and I will sit on this property until it has some capital appreciation, and then and I'll put flip it conventional. off. Yeah. So it, that's one interesting technique uh, that I think you're starting to see more and more of. And I, I believe, honestly, that the bigger markets like Ontario and BC have a lot of people have gone to this. And all are, we're already doing this for years because those are consistently appreciating markets. I will say, so Neil's first example there, which is to go the private route, is usually for a couple scenarios. One, um, you're struggling to qualify for maybe the highest bank rate, or it's getting really tight on the cash flow. So you're in a bit of a squeeze, either a squeeze on qualification or a squeeze on floating it. And while it's counterintuitive to take a higher loan and be like, well, hey, how come it's you know, cost me less to have higher a higher rate? rate? Um, it's because you're only making the interest payment. So for example, like if you had one credit card at 10% interest, but it required you to pay the interest plus 150 bucks, and you had another credit card that might be 11 or 12% interest, but you only had to pay the interest component, no extra 150 bucks. The higher interest card could actually be cheaper every payment. Okay, so it's kind of a stopgap um, and usually a short-term solution because you're not going to be building equity, you're not going to be paying down the principal, but your cash flow could be better. And again, it could help you in a pinch if you can't even qualify for the preferred product that might be, you know, right now, low 7% interest rate. The other reason you'd often do that is because um, they will look at your total the total picture of your income, like if you have really good personal income or have really good equity spread across a couple properties, it may make more sense to go to a private lender because they are more likely to go up to 75% loan to value regardless of, like they have more flexibility with respect to the servicing of that debt. So you may be talking to lender number one and they say, listen, we can only go 65% loan to value and we're going to charge you you know, 7.2%. Well, maybe a private will go to 75% loan to value, and granted, they will charge you maybe a 10% interest rate, but if it's only if it's interest only, it may still be a lower payment month to month, and you get that 10% equity, which you know, on a one and a half million dollar property is 150,000, which allows you to do something else, right? It allows you to buy another property. So the private route can either be when you're getting squeezed on qualification or cash flow, or when you really do want to do that next deal and you need the equity. And it sounds scary because it's a higher interest rate and it's a private mortgage, but you can see from a cash flow perspective, it actually may be cheaper if not net even. Okay, So that's one scenario. I want to talk about a simpler, more generic, not exciting situation where you just come up organically for your renewal. You had a great rate for five years. You know, you're laughing, but unfortunately, <laughs> the good times have ended and you have to opt into a rate. And imagine a scenario where you've got 
um, really good equity in the property. Maybe the property's gone up so much over these last five years that you might only owe about 40% on the property. So in theory, there's 60% of equity you have in there. It may be um, really tempting to go, oh my gosh, this is my chance to get so much equity. I have 40% equity in the property. Mm -hmm. I can maybe borrow upwards of 35%, but now you're going to change your mortgage from a cheap rate payment on, say, you know, 40% equity to a really high rate payment on 75% equity. That could be scary. One of the things that you can do is just replace your existing mortgage. So I'm just going to use really simple numbers. Say you have a million-dollar property and you owe $400,000 on a mortgage. Okay. You're in good shape. You're in good shape. And that 400 is at this nice, juicy, low interest rate of like 3%. Well, your term is at an end. You have to do a refinance, whether you like it or not. So you may kind of think, well, I would like access to $750,000, which is the 75% mm-hmm. loan to value. And if I go out and take that to the market, I'm going to get an interest rate maybe of 7.5%. And man, is that going to sting because my interest rate is more than doubling. Um, and the amount that it's being charged on is almost doubling as well. A hybrid that approach that you can take is say, I'm going to replace the old $400,000 mortgage with a new boring mortgage also for $400,000. And granted, it'll be at you know 7.5% rather than 3%, but it's still at least on a small amount. Then for the additional remaining $350K, there you can... Do approach number one, which Neil alluded to, where maybe you get a private, and maybe that makes sense from a cash flow perspective if you make interest-only payments. But the other thing you can do is go put a secured line of credit on that property. Yep. Okay. And the advantage of a line of credit, which is also a slightly higher interest rate, is you only pay on it once you use it. Mm-hmm. So in this scenario I was just talking about, you'd have your $400,000 mortgage just like you had before, albeit at a higher rate. The line of credit for $350,000, you don't pay anything on that until you use it. So that could just be sitting there, you know, collecting dust uh, and ready for whenever you want to um, take it out and buy whatever you want. But in the meantime, you're paying nothing on it. So that's a nice little hybrid refinance model um, where your effective rate on that $750,000 actually gets down quite low as long as you don't use it, right? Because you're 7.5% and zero, and that's kind of a blend. You might need a second bank to do the line of credit. The original bank might still have their concerns that you're going to fully utilize that line of credit and you'll be outside of your debt servicing ratios. Yep. Um, but there are many banks and even potentially a private bank that will do a secured line of credit like that, again, at a lower rate um, than today's current market. It may be not, but even still, it gives you that opportunity that if you find an amazing deal, you have access to that capital or if you're in need of that capital. Um, but that is that is a really good but, option. Yeah, because chances are if they're going to approve you for the 75% as a conventional mortgage, they'll probably approve you for the same 75% broken into the two parts. And I'm just explaining the advantage of, of breaking it into that two-level two, two approach. Yeah. Um, the next option I want to go into, and this is what I'm utilizing to get the takeouts on my properties, is CMHC financing. Uh, and that's for multi-units. Um, yep. And it can basically allow you to get up to 85% loan-to-value when you do your refinance. And the way that they do that is it's a lower rate because it's an insured mortgage, as well as they can give you a longer amortization. So a usual commercial yeah. loan is going to be probably 30 years. Uh, CMHC can do 40, and I think on new builds up to 50. 
uh, on, yep. on amortization. And so even on old product, though, you can get a 40-year. Now, you're thinking you probably, if you're in this position where you've gone and you're trying to get your multi-unit refinance through CMHC and the rates aren't that exciting or they're still not qualifying for you, that's likely because you're going through a big five bank here in Canada. In some private banks, so for example, First National is a private bank, uh, Peak Hill Capital in Ontario, there, there's private banks that are CMHC qualified. So that allows them to also lend uh, against the CMHC are utilizing CMHC insurance, um, and they can be more creative in how they fundraise the capital. So not to get into how that all works, but they can beat the rates quite aggressively uh, in comparison to a big five bank. And to the point yeah. of like, if a big five's quoting you, they can probably beat it by 100 basis points or 125 basis points, which is a big difference maker. And that might be enough to get you up from 65 to 75. It might even get you up into the 80 range. Um, if you're getting 80 plus, like you're doing amazingly well. So yeah. something to consider, you will likely have to do a five-year fixed rate. And yes, it's not going to be the best CMHG rate that we've seen for the last three, four years, but it will allow you to get all your capital out. And if you can service that debt right now, it might be the best option to get cash back in hand and kind of keep the project going. Yeah. Now with CMHC, there's a little bit tighter criteria on your reporting and, and stuff yep. like that. Um, and it's not a get out of jail free. Like you still have to be able to service that debt. So they will still run their, their numbers. Um, but it's still the same, same debt ratio. But the but rate is the, lower. The rate's the lower and the amortization is longer. So they're still going to have that 1.1 requirement that you have after all of your expenses, you still have free cash flow of 110% of what the payment will be. Um, and they do have more requirements. Under, I believe it's 24 units, uh, they go based on um, the face value of an appraisal. Yeah. Now, you can't also go in there with any appraiser. Like, yes, you might have an appraiser who gave you a number that's amazing um, and can justify it in their appraisal. They still have Good. to be CMHC approved. They have to yeah. be CMHC approved, so likely they're not going to accept that. And CMHC, if you go over 24 units, has their own criteria and effectively reappraises the value of your property to approve the loan. So there are still a bunch of little nuances that you have to pass to get CMHC. But if you can get CMHC, I strongly recommend it. Again, if you can float it and you don't want the money out right now, um, then go for it. But I, I do want the money. I'd much rather have the money in my accounts than in equity in the properties. Because I'm not big on doing a second later on down the road when I'm purchasing. Yeah, it's so funny. We were talking uh, for the episode like, we need to not go into like the heavy, complicated stuff, and this is some heavy, complicated stuff. That's so I'm trying if, to keep it high yeah, level. Yeah, if if you're if you're still listening and, and you're keen on that, it's because you're you're really pushing the envelope of what you're doing. So that's great. That'll uh, be a Patreon episode. CMHC financing, how you get it, what it looks like, all the specific details of, of that process. Uh, I can I've done it a few times now. I love it, uh, but it is definitely something you have to get I'm, used to. I'm going to go over one like boring, simple, plain one. Yeah. Okay. So we're talking about different options. Some of them are refinancing when you have to, that you're at the end of your five-year term. Other situations when you're refinancing because you want to get some money out, et cetera, et cetera. Um, one advantage of a refinance when it's kind of at your discretion um, is that if you have a good existing rate, you can just get a, effectively a top-up. Okay. So one of the things um, that we, we kind of maybe glossed over there or, or maybe didn't get into is that you may have an existing mortgage at, I mean, gosh, I've got this one great mortgage. It's like 2.6%. Yeah. Right. And if I go out. That's and wild. That's wild. It's a great. Commercial? Fixed. Yeah. 
Ooh. I know, I know. It's good. I wanted 2.8. I actually uh, assumed it from a seller, but that's another thing. It's got two years left. It's mm. juicy. Um, but in the event that before that two years, I want to get equity out of that property, well, obviously, I don't want to refinance because I'd be getting rid of this incredible 2.6% rate and replacing it with like seven and a half. I would never do that. But maybe there's equity there and I want to tap into it. And perhaps the property, because it's appreciating in value, I'm doing some renovations, you know, I'm back and all right, I got 65% there. I've got 10% that I can tap into, but I don't want to refinance the whole property. You can go back to your lender or go to a different lender, but but typically you first go back to your primary Always lender. start with your primary yeah, lender. And say, listen, I just want a little bit extra. I just need a little 10% S- more. Say it like that too. You know, that's going to that's gonna help your cause. Just break my little something, something. You know, a 10% increase as a second mortgage will be given to you at, at that day's rate. So call it 7.5%. And that's your new money, which is 10%. You've got the original six, uh, 65%. So effectively, your one-seventh, right, is new money. Mm-hmm. And that's important for, for uh, this reason here. Your effective blended rate will combine the 2.6 on the 65%, and you'll only pay the 7.5% on the last 10. So if I were to do something like that, I would get access to 10% uh, of the capital, 10% of the equity in cash, and it would only increase my effective rate from about 2.6 to like maybe, I don't know, I'd have to do the math, but like maybe three? Yeah, maybe? 3.1. Three point, look at this guy, man. I love this guy. <laughs> so my rate would go uh, from 2.6 only up to 3.1, which is still an incredible rate, and yet I'd get access to 10%, uh, which on this particular property, I think the properties were like $2.3 million, So I'd be able to pull out $230,000. The only difference is an increase in my rate of 0.5. So that's adding a second mortgage and new money on top of an existing product, which allows you to take advantage of having a great rate while still pulling out more equity. That, that is a really good option. And again, this is just for anyone. Anyone can do this. And your mortgage advisor like some banks i find are a little sus about it this is like conspiracy neil but because they want to push you into new product oh of course they yeah. they're like oh we can't do it we can't do this we can't like, do that yeah like, we'll get I that equity it. out for you at seven and a half percent you can day. even do this when you're buying a new house you can port your mortgage sometimes yeah most of the time you should be able to yeah but again they're going to make it non-favorable or not favorable they're not going to be very easy about it or they're going to come up with a bunch of reasons why not because they want to sign you back in at more expensive money. And don't forget yeah. the advisors, as much as they are your friend, they're like they're a business. They have to sell and they have to sell the more expensive money. Yeah. Right. They they have targets to meet and getting you out of a super cheap mortgage is a huge win. Yeah. And what you'll watch when rates go them, back down, we don't they'll be offering ports all over the place. Yeah, we don't mean them, the brokers. We mean like the institutions. The institutions, you know. exactly. Yeah. Brokers aren't necessarily as incentivized. They're more incentivized to help you. Get the brokers the want to get you as much more money, money as they can. not more expensive money. The lenders want to get you more expensive money. The brokers want to get you more money. There's a key difference there. Yeah, exactly. One other thing I want to mention that you'll hear, this will be the last thing before we give our final option, but the brokers will say, and they're not wrong in this, and a lot of bankers will say this too, and, and it's an option, is, okay, for now, like you can service 60%. Yeah. Now you have 60% out now. You don't technically need any more money. You want more money. But I want it, though. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so you can service that. So let's leave it at that. And if you find a great deal you want to buy, we can do a second. We can give you that 15% to close as your down payment on the next one. Yeah. 
Personally, I don't love that option for a bunch of reasons, predominantly being the rate at that point in time, you don't know what it's going to be, the issues you're going to face trying to get that money, because if they're not giving it to you now, there's also a likelihood they won't give it to you then, especially because that new property is also not going to debt service. Yeah, that's why this rarely happens in practice. It rarely happens unless rates continue to go down and you haven't taken on a bunch of equity. So in the last couple of years, you could do that, and that's why things are going so great. So... I've been hearing it tossed around a lot. Like, yeah, it's fine. Just take your 60% now. You can pay out all your construction loans and you'll get the 15% when you go to buy. Mm -hmm. If you can get out your money, I highly suggest, my opinion is take that money out and in your account, it's much stronger. And if you go into competitive offer on an amazing deal in the next two years, you want to have cash that you can slap down on the deal, not the potential of being able to pull equity because I can almost guarantee your deal is going to fall apart because I don't foresee them wanting to easily lend against other properties when nothing services. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of a bait and switch because they're like, so best case scenario, uh, we get two deals from you. We get both your properties, like in terms of a a debt servicing client uh, commitment. Worst case, we get this one and you don't get the other one. Like, you know, (laughs) it's kind of a a win-win for them. Yeah. Um, So you have another option to effectively um, get out of a deal. To get out of your deal is to sell your property. Yeah. That that's an that's an obvious one. You can always sell the property, and I mean, as give a whole, give us a call. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Anywhere in Canada, give us a call. Anywhere in the states, actually, give us me a call. Um, we forgot to do the Q and A. No, no, Q and oh, A is last Sunday. Oh yeah, we're also so, doing the Q and A after this. Another Q&A, new segment. Hold hold the phone. Um, but uh, yeah, you, know, you can sell the property if you're an active flipper or developer flipper resale like you build to resell you actually only get taxed with active business tax because that is an active business so you can flip multi-units and not pay the full freight on capital gains um but again you have to be active in doing so it can't be like you have a bunch of investments in a one-off deal um that that you're going to sell off but it's an option and and right now sometimes it makes sense because you need to look at what's the long-term trajectory for this and this is something it's a good time to think about that and kind of retake stock and be like okay i have all of these expenses coming up on this property it makes x amount of dollars i can likely get this right now which would give me this much money which give me a hundred thousand dollars which i can turn into x over the next five years or if i just keep this what is that hundred thousand dollars going to look like and you might be surprised that there's gonna be properties in your portfolio that actually make sense to sell even after you pay the realtor, even after you pay capital gains or potentially the other taxes involved. Well, also, it's not just how much money would I get out of the property, but if you're looking, if you're staring down the barrel of refinance that was going to turn a property potentially negative cash flow, you can be like, oh, yep. man, I'm losing a thousand bucks a month on this property now for the yep. next little bit. You add that to the money that you could make from the deal, you know, it, it, it all it, helps it, accounts, right? And a property might freeze you up, right? It might yeah. freeze you up and, and stop your growth. And yeah. so sometimes getting rid of it retaking stock and starting on a new project is is the better option uh potentially downsizing or going into a new style of project or partnering selling is not the end of the world um if you can keep it that's great but always look at the exit and what the long-term play is out of it Uh, and so sometimes it's easy to kind of clean up your portfolio uh by selling by selling a property yeah so i think we just gave you five different strategies for getting out of an existing borrowing product either because you need to or because you want to uh and and what angles you can you can take what approaches uh and this is the sort of advice you should be getting from your agent and your mortgage professional so if you're not holla
Yeah, give us a show. Um, okay, we have another new segment here, which we've kind of done informally before. Yeah. Uh, is that what you're about to dive into? Exactly. Okay. Um, so this is a Q&A. Um, we're going to do a better job of specifically answering your questions and even better answering them on air. Um, so a question came in to Neil, and it relates a little bit. You were talking about the American market there a second ago. Yeah, so we, we planned the, these segments here in the last little bit. This is just a one question that we have for today. Yep. Uh, we're going to have more prep, but leave your questions in the comments uh, on any of the platforms that you listen to us. We're going to be compiling them. And every episode, we're going to be answering them. So this time was from Scott Zagler. Uh, his handle is Scott underscore Aspen underscore, I think it's Ziegler? Zagler? Correct me. I appreciate it for listening, Scott. Uh, we've seen a lot of your messages. Uh, he is a realtor as well. I'm actually going to pull him up right now. He's a Saskatoon realtor. Uh, he's with EXP. Right he asked to our most recent post, I'm curious why. What does Remax Neil see south of the border that he can't get here? And to give you some pretext, the post is one of Neil's 20... 23 goals is to expand my portfolio into the U.S. And so he's Check asking why. That's the Instagram account. Um, the main reason, I'll just say, is like as a whole, super simple answer, 10 times the population, 10 times the opportunities. The actual other reason being the U.S. has a lot of tax laws that incentivize investment and continued growth of your investment. Uh, and so... I want to be in a place where you go with the flow. The flow is working with you. It almost goes back to what we said about Airbnbs. Right now, they're putting in all these stop guards to make it impossible. You're yep. no longer going with the flow. That's why everyone can go back and remember, I talked great things about Airbnb just six, eight months ago. But then the second they start putting in all of these stop signs and uh, roadblocks, I want to get out of that because the flow is no longer going that way. It's the same with real estate investing and, with and Canada versus the States. And I, it's a reflection of something larger like it's not just specific to airbnb and frankly it's not just specific to real estate but the culture uh and exactly. the politicization or the political element of, of making money it's different down there yeah right so i think there's a lot of opportunity there um they also have huge immigration numbers um also when you go far south like i just got back from arizona it's beautiful. Like the weather's really nice. Um, they have really neat things that I'd like to be able to travel there and spend some time, obviously ma managing my investments as well as just enjoying what they have to offer, uh, whether it be top golf or certain restaurants or experiences. There's just a lot within. Like it's a big country to just write off because you might not necessarily love the president or whatever it may be. Um, they still have a lot of great opportunities. But I do expect that it'll be more difficult than Canada. I think Canada is a safer, more stable investment. Um, I think down there they have higher vacancy rates. There's more, more nuances product. to the markets within like yeah. neighborhoods. Like one side of the street, there, there's. I was watching a video yesterday. There's one side of the street could be eight hundred thousand average. The literal other side of the street could be a three hundred thousand dollar average, and it can be all within like a, a district. Um, so there's yeah. there's a lot of items, there's a lot of nuances that go into it. There are a sets of rules in every state and city that are different, uh, and they again they run a high vacancy rate. Like the average in the states, it's low right now due to the immigration, but on average the states have ran a higher vacancy rate than Canada, which means you're competing with your product. So it, I think it's more of a business and it's a more active business down there. But it's what I it's what what I do, and I'm I'm interested in trying it. Maybe I go down and lose my shirt, but I want to try it. You never know until you jump. You can into always the, buy the another tank. extra small shirt, Neil. So, exactly. That's okay. If you guys like my new small shirt, <laughs> like the video. All right. Thanks so much. We appreciate you checking in. Um, I hope you like the new segments. We're going to have yep. more of this. Again, if you know 
uh, a key player for the week, nominate them, hit us up. Maybe it's something you're doing that you're like, you know what? I'm feeling good about I'm myself. A key player. I'm a key player this week. Uh, and if you have questions, we'll have that segment every week now as well. Next week, our key player for this week just happens to be the guest that we've got coming on next, and that's Cyrus. So uh, He also wears small shirts. He also wears very small <laughs> shirts. <laughs> make sure you like this, and make sure you turn on the <laughs> notification thing so you don't miss that episode and the more content to come. Thanks again. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for watching the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, press like. Don't forget to subscribe. But also check us out on Instagram and TikTok. You can find all the links below. Thanks again for checking us out.